services contractors see a lot of questionable policy coming. An executive order on new contractors keeping the employees of the displaced incumbent. Project labor agreements on major construction. That's another. For the latest reaction, we turn to the executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, let's start with executive order 14055 to reduce disruption in the delivery of services by forcing new winning contractors to take on the employees of those that they displaced. The Professional Services Council sees this as kind of pointless, right? So, Tom, as you well know, the president signed out a bunch of more than 90 executive orders in the first year of his presidency. And one of them was this executive order 14055, which is non-displacement of qualified workers under service contracts. This will sound very familiar to those who have been in the government contracting business in the services sector for a while. This is not the first time this has happened. This dates back to the mid-90s. It has been a, a rule twice before, at least twice before. And the Professional Services Council, PSC, has been expressing concern about this perspective on the labor force for a while. So this is sort of where government contracting and labor policy intersect in a major way. Because this has been a rule twice before, most recently under the Obama administration, we've been asking them to start tracking if the goal, and it is stated in the executive order, is to create a seamless transition between two services contractors. The new awardee can can offer employment or should has to offer employment to certain workers from the incumbent contractor. What does that look like? Is it actually a more seamless transition? Is it more efficient? Is it more economical? And no one has tracked this. Even though this has been the rule twice before, there's been no validated study or data to support that this is actually a good idea. And for several reasons, PSE thinks it's a bad idea. It is it is answering a problem, solving a problem that does not yet exist and may not exist at all. The one major concern that we have at the Professional Services Council, other than the inability of uh, the executive branch to seem to track whether this works or not, is that it treats contractor employees as though they themselves are a government asset. It is saying, we would like to treat you as a federal employee and you have to continue doing your work regardless of which company you work for. This flies in the face of what is traditionally a corporate privilege of hiring, retaining, training, promoting, and otherwise making happy their employees. They're treating them like they belong to the government And that really is something the Professional Services Council has strong concerns with. And isn't there also the question that the very reason the government might change contractors is because of the performance of the crew that was there for the first time around? That is 100 percent the case. You know, sometimes you you don't want the contractor employee being assigned to that contract. and And that tends to be a problem. What also happens is the government tends to, even though they they talk about wanting to to get the most qualified contractor on contract, um, oftentimes they award to whoever offers the lowest price and technically acceptable proposal. If that is the mindset going in, they may actually be damaging the wage futures of whoever those contractor employees are because they have a right of first refusal to go and work for a contractor who may actually be paying them less. Uh, or offering them fewer benefits. And so, you know, this is this is a set of concerns that we have as professional services council. And I think going forward, there was a comment period that expired last week. We offered the recommendation that they withdraw this proposed rule that hit the street and on which we were commenting. 
We also suggested that they revoke or even just rework the executive order that came out uh, 14055 to start to address some of these issues. But listen, Tom, we live we live in the real <laughs> world. This has been this has been uh, the, a rule in Democratic administrations in the past. I suspect it will go through. So we did offer a you know several constructive comments based on the rule that was put out. But our recommendation is that they really think hard about whether this actually does what they intended to do. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And another resurrection, again, this comes and goes depending on the administration, is the use of project labor agreements in major construction. That's basically a sop to the construction unions. What they mean is, what they intend is for union wages, even in largely non-union areas. So does this affect professional services contractors? I suspect at some level it does. It does. And thanks for raising this, Tom. Project labor agreements are something that we at the Professional Services Council are, are very familiar with. I would say this is an executive order, and I believe the number is 14063, uh, one of the ones that came out last year, is really to talk about union agreements under major construction contracts. And contracting officers could require project labor agreements they have that authority. This is what mandates them, and the and the proposed rule ban- would mandate that any large-scale construction project defined as $35 million or more would require PLAs, project labor agreements. We wonder about the applicability of this because it assumes that these labor agreements are for unions, and that's not always the case, as you pointed out. And so I think, you know, we're going to offer some comments. This came out for comment as a proposed rule last week, and we hope to provide our perspective on on what this means going forward. There are exceptions. You don't have to if you don't feel like it's appropriate to require the, the PLAs. That said, contracting officers are not known for being mavericks. They do like to stick to what they know and and for very good reasons in many cases. And so I don't know that that exception would be exercised very often. And just a quick question on the Inflation Reduction Act, or so-called, because there's some debate as to what effect it will have on inflation. But we do know that it does commit the government to a lot of money here and there, largely in the form of tax breaks and tax credits, but also some expenditures. What have you seen on that that might affect, again, services contractors and their relationship with the government agencies? So this is a fascinating area for me, Tom, because you know inflation is eating our lunch in the government contracting world right now. The impact on workforce... We have so many more jobs that are unfilled with few job seekers. And so if you can make more money in the purely commercial sector, because their wages can be adjusted more easily than in the government contracting world, where sometimes, oftentimes you're tied to a schedule of increases and inflation has outpaced that, tracking inflation for quite a while. And, you know, if you look at what the Biden-Harris ticket ran on was to look at COVID recovery, jobs, climate, social justice, and the like. We've been waiting to see what might come out on the climate front. And this bill is what that is. So to call it the Inflation Reduction Act is an interesting name. But at the end of the day, I think this is sort of where the Biden administration is coming down on on climate. It does call for quite a bit of investment in energy security and climate change. And we are unpacking that because the bill just recently passed. That said, for, for government contractors, it really is in the area of energy security, climate change, and it's not so much about helping those companies that are that are struggling right now to retain their workforce 
and to keep to their schedule and to their cost that they outlined in their contract to bear. So I think at the end of the day, I'm looking forward to unpacking this and finding out how it will help reduce inflation for the government contracting, particularly in the services sector. But right now, it's difficult for me to see how that helps. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive and Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took uh, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 